Hey everyone, if you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Uh, the first Council of Nicaea, 325 AD, and um, I want to just start out doing something that I promised I would never do in my, my class. I don't know if anybody was here when I promised that made this promise, but the promise is I was never going to do any pop quizzes or make you do anything, but I'm going to do something right now. And what I'm going to do is, I'm going to ask any of you, if you can't, don't want to do it, that's fine. I, I'll try to do it myself. Um, can anyone here, uh, can anyone here recite the creed? You remember the one you do every week at Mass? Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyone want to take a shot at it? Is it the one that starts, I believe in God? The that's the one, yes, the Father Almighty. Let's, we can all do it together if you like. Maybe it's easier. Heaven, heaven and Earth. All that is seen and unseen, visible and invisible. I believe in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things were made, for us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, when by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary, and became man. He was, our sake, he was crucified in Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. And rose again on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. He has been come to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom shall have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together and glorified, who has been spoken through the prophets. I believe one one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So I know everybody here goes to Mass now. <laughs> so I apologize for making you do that, but the reason I want to do that is okay. The question should be in your mind okay, why do we recite that creed? Okay, what's a creed? A creed is a symbol of what we believe, but why do we do it? Why is it important? Um, and that is the uh, what we come to first. Whoop. Talk about uh, the Council of Nicaea. Oh, yeah, come on. Talk about uh, why this is a controversial topic. And it's controversial because... Um, controversial is it because we say it every week? Or? Well, no, because people, some people deny it. <laughs> they deny the truth of it. Oh, okay. um, there are not just, well, there are non-Trinitarian Christians who don't believe in the Trinity. There are other religious faiths who don't who don't accept, um, well, other monotheistic faiths who don't accept the Trinity. Um, there are also, this is also the subject of historical controversy for a variety of reasons. Um, a lot of myth-making in regards to um, this, uh, this subject. If any of you are familiar with the author Dan Brown, many, many years ago now, wrote a series of books, and uh, Da Vinci Code was the big one, which, if you don't know, took a lot of liberties with um, church history. Um, he, quite frankly, made up a lot of stuff about the Emperor Constantine, basically uh, several things, but decreeing, of course, the doctrine of the Trinity, whereas it not, had not been a belief in Christianity before. This is not true, by the way. Uh, but this is one source of this type of controversy. Another source for this, if I can get this on here, uh, uh, are, uh, are, are good friends, the new atheists. Who like to start websites, who like to have podcasts where they again make up stuff about church history where they don't really know what they're talking about. Uh, and by the way, if you want to learn a really good refutation of stuff like this, there's a website actually, it's called History for Atheists. And it was actually started by atheists to refute new atheists. They didn't like them because they were so bad at history. And so, uh, and so, um, uh, and so it's one source for this. But you, again, you have, again, things like you know, Constantine, uh, Emperor Constantine making up stuff at the Council of Nicaea. If you don't know the Council of Nicaea, this is where that creed you just recited was, at least a version of it was first promulgated. And so I'm going to the history of this tonight. Um, and then finally, there are actually Orthodox, I say Orthodox, there are, you know, myths about the Council that people who believe tell about it. If you don't know, there's a famous one that St. Nicholas, you know, St. Nick, uh, Santa Claus, uh, allegedly punched the uh, deacon Arius, who was the one who began this controversy in the ancient world, at the Council of Nicaea, which is not true. Uh, St. Nicholas was never there. <laughs> There's no evidence he was there. Nobody punched Arius. Some people probably wanted to, but they didn't actually do this. It may be, but it's not true. 
There's also a myth, by the way, that um, I say a myth is a story that was told in the ancient world by ancient historians that Arius, and this is after he gained a reputation as being a sort of arch heretic, um, like literally he died on the toilet when his bowels exploded, <laughs> which again, we have no evidence this actually happened. It was probably a story made up about him. Yeah, what well, was that? Was I forgot to tell you that one, so you get a, a kick out of it. But there are um, again myths about this because it is so important, because it's been important to the faith for so long, and because it's so old, and nobody knows better. There is also, however, more serious critiques by again people from other faiths. Uh, one of the most um, long lived of these comes from uh, one of the other monotheistic faiths, uh, Islam. Uh, Islam, of course, stresses the absolute unity of God, the idea of God being one one being, one substance, but three persons, uh, is uh, it is offensive to them. And so this gets into the Quran, its holy books and everything. It is in some ways a religious critique, if you like, of Christianity and its, um, uh, and its particular the theologies in many ways. What do they believe about Jesus? He was a prophet inspired okay. by God, but not, okay. uh, not anything divine, no. Okay. They deny that specifically. There's also, of course, the Church of Latter-day Saints, um, which dates um, the corruption of the original teaching of Jesus from what they call the Great Apostasy. The Great Apostasy is the conversion of Constantine and, uh, and his, uh, his uh, convening the Council of Nicaea. Uh, that's a big, if you don't know anything about the Church of Latter-day Saints, it's, it's sort of the divine line of history for them in many ways, where you forget it, it's all the other stuff. History, I'm sorry. Pardon? Well, you, you said, uh, I, I missed, I couldn't make out what you said after, what, if you don't know anything about the... This is the divining line in history for them. Okay. The great apostasy means when people fell away from that original revelation that Jesus gave. Again, in the Mormon faith, Jesus came to North America, left the plates that were discovered by Joseph Smith in the 19th century. You don't need to know this, but again, this is kind of um, kind of this idea of the faith being corrupted. This is another uh, accusation that's usually thrown against the Council of Nicaea, corrupted, original primitive Christianity, right? And then finally, maybe you had, I had a good friend in high school who was a Jehovah's Witness. And I know what Jehovah's Witnesses are. They're non-Trinitarian Christians. They deny the Trinity. Um, who we probably know anything about them, they go door to door. Of course, friend. Anybody ever actually, I never had the pleasure of actually talking to one. I'd, I'd like to, it'd be kind of nice, but um, it, I, I can imagine, I can imagine. But so you do have critiques of There's also um, the other group would be Unitarian Christian. Unitarians are, um, they, 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 would they would deny virtually everything supernatural about the faith, basically. They're the, probably the most theologically liberal branch of Christianity, essentially. Uh, but there are, my point is, there are people who would call themselves Christians who deny the Trinity, right? So, how did all this come about, and what is the real story of uh, the Council of Nicaea? Well, the Council and the Creed it promulgates comes out of a lot of ferment in the first three centuries of Christianity. And that's the second part of this lecture is, you know, it's titled, Who Do You Say That I Am? Because for the first three centuries, um, People debated intensely, okay, who was Christ? What was he? What was this man who was resurrected from the dead, right? This is a crazy thing. Uh, someone being resurrected from the dead, right? And we know from the biblical uh, evidence, from the Gospels, right, the earliest Christians, they acknowledge Jesus in some way as divine, right? Uh, you have, you know, the Gospel of John is the most explicit about this, right? He is the Son of the Father, there's a very deep connection, this kind of seems this way. Um, but even in the Synoptic Gospels, where at his baptism, you have the Holy Spirit descend upon him, and he says, this is my beloved son. Um, the Gospel of Matthew, if you can remember that, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he rises from the dead, he comes and meets his followers, and um, they fall down on their knees and worship him. Um, you, don't, you don't get on your knees and worship anyone in the ancient world unless it's a god, essentially, for the most part. So, they believe he's divine, but... But, and this is the key thing to note about this, is that the biblical evidence is not always necessarily clear on the nature of his divinity, right? It talks about him being one with the Father. It talks about, uh, Jesus himself talks about the Father being greater than I at certain points, in John, for example. Um, and so it also talks, of course, about the Holy Spirit. And, of course, the Trinitarian idea of, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit's really only explicitly stated in the Gospel of Matthew, very last words, I think, where he tells the apostles to go into the world and baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you have this idea that, well, Christ was actually this divine. He was the Son of God. Okay, 
What does that mean? And in fact, it took a while for Christians to reflect on that and, okay, and really begin to dig, okay, what does that mean? How do we believe that? Um, in the post-apostolic age, you're going to have a, a little bit of uh, some uh, reflection on this. Church fathers like Ignatius of Antioch, the Bishop of Antioch, um, thought of Christ as the Word made flesh, but didn't really go much farther than that. He was God's Word, you know, put into human form, became human. That part was accepted. Um, and we know, by the way, we know pretty well, not just from um, post-apostolic evidence, uh, church or the church fathers, but also from uh, non-biblical evidence that uh, Christians worshipped Jesus as God. Uh, if you're familiar with the letters of Pliny the Younger, Pliny the Younger was a Roman, uh, Roman governor, actually, who wrote back to the Emperor Trajan in year 117 about these odd people called Christians. And he was, didn't know what to do with them. They were doing, they were having, essentially, it was an illegal cult. You couldn't actually be a Christian. But he wasn't sure what to do with them. And he asked, he wrote, he wrote describing, their, their, describing what they did. He described them uh, getting together on Sunday mornings and singing hymns to Christ as if to a God. Uh, we also have, and I'll show you the picture in a moment, um, visual evidence that uh, non-Christians understood that uh, Christians thought Jesus was their God, basically. Uh, but the evidence, for the most part, is kind of meager in the, again, we're talking about early, you know, early, early part of the first, uh, second century, right? Late first, early second century is a little bit um, uh, difficult to understand what they're getting at, the early Christians. Let me show you this image here real quickly. Oh, I don't have the picture there. I thought I did. Okay, well, wait a minute. I'll show you the picture. Anyway, things change in the second century, however. And the reason they change is that in the second and third centuries, you're going to have Christians encountering Greek philosophy in several ways. Um, partly, you're going to have apologists who are converts to Christianity, people like St. Justin, you know, St. Justin Martyr. It's a martyr, obviously. St. Justin Martyr was a Greek philosopher who converted to Christianity in the middle of the second century AD. Uh, I think we know this because he wrote several um, uh, apologia. He wrote several apologies for Christianity addressed to the Roman emperor. Um, in which, by the way, he speaks in Christ about Christianity in you know philosophical terms. He used Sto uses terms of Stoic philosophy and Platonic philosophy to describe you know, who Jesus is, who God is, those sorts of things. And this is kind of uh, crucial in some ways, because this is the first time Christians have been really forced to reflect on, okay, who is God in an abstract, who is Christ in an abstract way, right? Um, and to work it out in, you could say, logical terms, because Greek philosophy is, that's what Greek philosophy in some ways is about, right? Logical precision, um, precise use of words. Um, and they're having to rebut criticisms from pagan thinkers in the latter part of the uh, second century, you will have people like the philosopher named Celsus um, criticizing Christians for portraying, you know, Jesus, well, he's supposed to be a god, but he's eating food. That's absurd, right? Because God can't have a body. God can, because for the Greeks, you know, divinity is pure spirit. There cannot be any, there can't be any crossing the boundary from spirit to matter. It just doesn't make sense. God can't take a body. Um, he also, and Celsus was a very incisive critic, by the way, of Christi early Christianity. He also said, hey, you're worshiping this guy that got executed by one of our governors about 100 years ago. Um, you claim to be descended from the Jews, but they don't worship some dude who died 100 years ago. He basically accused them of being renegade Jews, essentially. It's a very interesting critique. Um, and conversely, they're also having to, these apologists, deal with criticisms from Jewish thinkers. Jewish thinkers, by the way, had long embraced, in some regard, some of them had anyway, um, Greek philosophy. You can perhaps know Philo of Alexandria, who was a Greek-speaking uh, Jewish philosopher, first century AD, uh, and their criticisms about, hey, you've, you've violated the principle of monotheism here. You're worshiping Jesus, but you're saying he's separate from the Father. That doesn't make sense. So they're having to, and by the way, if you're wondering how they respond to all these, to the Jewish criticisms, they'll look back to the Old Testament and they'll find passages, for example. A famous one is of the, um, the three visitors to Abraham. When three visitors come to his tent and these divine messengers and they don't quite know who they are. This idea that they're kind of like a, you know, this triune representation of God. That's one of the things they uh, appeal to. They'll appeal to the wisdom literature of the Old Testament where God talks about his wisdom that is with him from the beginning, that sort of thing. You know, Jesus as the Logos, the Word. Coming from uh, John, the Gospel of John. 
Um, and so in that early period, their concern was, okay, to answer these criticisms. As you slowly move into the third century, however, uh, and things begin to turn, this encounter uh, with Greek philosophy leads Christians to start um, going a little, a little bit further and trying to press on to a more important issue is how does, what is the relationship between the Father and the Son? If they're both divine, how can they both be divine? Again, God be one, right? They're trying to work that out slowly over time. They don't necessarily have um, the word, the, uh, the uh, answer just yet. Um, and I won't go through this in too much detail to waste too much of your time, but there are tons of different approaches to, okay, who is Christ? How is he God? Some of them, I won't go through all of these, they're pretty wild, some of them. Um, and I should mention, by the way, there are very, very few, very few, maybe one or two of the various different, you know, I say options for belief, basically, of the Christian in the early, in the early centuries, which saw him as merely human. It was like one or two. I won't mention the groups. There's, for the most part, they had no problem believing he was a god. Uh, they had a problem believing he was a god and man at the same time. Um, one of these, by the way, which features in, uh, uh, in a... Um, a heresy called Gnosticism, uh, is a belief that Jesus wasn't human at all, that he, did, he only appeared to die on the cross. It's sometimes called adoptionism, that God sort of adopted a body, and you know he just left the body behind on the cross. He didn't really suffer. Um, there are all sorts of, there's some, I, didn't, I didn't know this, but I know there's some, I didn't know some of these were so wild. There's also a tradition which apparently goes back to sort of late Jewish apocalyptic thinking to a certain degree of Christ as an angel, like literally he's an angelic, angelic being, and so all different sorts of things because nobody's quite worked out, okay, what's the nature of this faith that we profess? Um, you do have, as you get closer to uh, the end of the third century, uh, beginning of the third century, what we might think of as Trinitarian thinking, like, the, for example, the uh, Church of the Tertullian in the, in the late uh, 100s coined the term trinos in Greek, which means trinity, right? It began to think slowly in terms of this Trinitarian thought. One of the things that's um, interesting about this, however, is that um, a lot of this has to do with reconciling these tensions, right, within Christian belief. Between, okay, having one God being these, this, these, three, these three appearances, these three persons in the Bible, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How can you, how can you reconcile that, right? How do you do that? Uh, how do you reconcile humanity with divinity? Uh, how do you reconcile plurality with unity? All those other sorts of things are really what they're struggling with trying to express this stuff. Um, one of the things to keep in mind as well is that they are, for the most part, this, by the way, is a philosophical problem. At the level of worship, for the most part, people do think of, insofar as you're talking about devotional hymns, you know, liturgy. Someone actually described the Church of the Early Centuries as a Trinitarian faith with a... Uh, the, with a um, uh, with a Unitarian theology. Um, as you'll see, basically in terms of their actual worship, they were worshiping one and three. That was kind of what they did. It was a sort of um, unreflective faith, but that was what they actually did. What they're having come to terms with is, okay, how do we, can we explain that rationally? And partly because they are being challenged by the Greco-Roman world as to, okay, because, and you get this complaint from a lot of early uh, Roman thinkers about the Christians. Well, they, one other time we try to pin them down on something, they would just say, well, it's faith, it's faith, it's faith. The Christians really did, as you get into the second, third centuries, when you have uh, schools of Christian philosophers begin to appear in great cities like Alexandria and Antioch, try to work out, okay, we come to this by faith, but can it be explained reasonably? Uh, and this is what's being worked out over the centuries. You also have, oh, well, actually, I'm going to show you something in the first, uh, come on. This is weird. Uh, what's going on? Oh, there we go. This is what I wanted to show you earlier. Uh, I should have got to it earlier. But this is the uh, so-called Alexa Menos graffiti. And I just wanted to show you this. This is the actual graffiti on the left-hand side. You see a, a picture of it here. This is actually from a building on the Palatine Hill. Oh, what did I do that? Uh, that wasn't... Um, oh. <laughs> My apologies. Everything went wrong. All of a sudden... Anyway, what that picture was was this Alexa Menos graffiti, which we think... Uh, the consensus seems to be that it comes from the early 3rd century, early 200s. And what it shows, if I can bring this back up quickly enough, what it shows there is a guy, you see him with his hand up, standing in front of this, it looks like a donkey on a cross. And the guy is there with his hand up because he's praying. 
And what the graffiti says is Alexamenos worships his god. So it seems to be, again, you had this indication that the, the, uh, the Greco-Romans, the pagans, understood that the Christians worshiped Jesus as God, and they're mocking it, obviously. Interesting. Maybe even earlier that, we're not really sure in terms of the age of, uh, of, that, uh, of that little uh, graffiti there. I'll get to the, the, <laughs> the slides back in a moment. I'm going to go on here. The other thing that happens in terms of development of, okay, how do we understand Christ, is that you're going to have the development of creeds before you get to the Council of Nicaea and the promulgation of the Nicene Creed. And in fact, oh, there we go. Well, what's wrong with this thing? Uh, sure. Sorry, this is getting kind of out of hand here. Uh, where were we at? Oh, there. Why is Okay, it's not... Uh, let me see if I can get that moving again real quick. Out of there, huh? I don't know. Oh. That's what we did. Let's see if. No. I don't know why it's doing that. That's strange. Hold on for a moment. Yeah, I'm not really sure. <laughs> I apologize for that, but I guess I'll have to. Uh... Oh, wait a minute. What is this? Yeah, that's. I don't know why it's doing that. If you hit present, I think it will go. Present? Yeah. Or is it aware? <laughs> On the slideshow? Oh. I can bring it back up now. Oh, there we go. Yay. Apologize for that. Okay. I was going to talk about the development of creeds, uh, and essentially um, all creeds were local ones before uh, the Council of Nicaea, and uh, they were mostly for those who needed to be instructed in the faith. They were catechumens. They were basically question and answers. Like if you ever, and if you're old enough, you probably know the Baltimore Catechism. It's basically that's what it is. Um, and in fact, what makes the Nicene Creed different is that for the first time, the creed's going to uh, creed's going to be developed not for catechumens but for bishops, and we'll see why in a moment. Um, but probably the earliest, you know, anything like a creed that the church had uh, were probably baptismal formulas or formulae in which, again, you know, I, I, was, uh, I was baptized as an adult, of course, you have to go through the rite of baptism, you have to answer all these questions, do you accept the Catholic faith, do you do da 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 And uh, that's kind of an implicit um, creed in some ways, because you're asking, you have to have some assurance of orthodoxy, of course. You can't just say, hey, I... I believe in God, sure. What does God mean? There's a funny story from the 17th century in Spain. Um, the Spanish Inquisition was questioning this, this local peasant. <clears throat> and um, they asked him if he believed in God, and he said he did. And they asked him what, he meant, what it meant to be believe in God. And he said, eating well, drinking well, and getting up at 10 o'clock in the morning. So uh, the point is that people say the word God then can mean different things. Obviously, we're aware of that. So you had to have some assurance. That's what the baptismal formula was for. But, as you, again, as you get to the 2nd and 3rd centuries, you begin to have um, summaries, summaries of instruction for catechumens dating from the 2nd and 3rd centuries, which sometimes referred to as the rule of faith. And increasingly, even, um, again, more uh, philosophical authors like St. Irenaeus uh, in some of their polemical works will write down what they take the rule of faith to be about. They'll give a list of beliefs and everything. So, increasingly, as you begin to have serious debates, first between Christians 
and Greco-Romans and uh, Jews, and then in the second and third centuries between each other, when they're arguing about the nature of Christ's divinity, um, they're going to begin to have more and more concern for orthodoxy as the faith grows, as more and more people get attracted to the faith. And increasingly toward the end of the third century, you're going to have more and more tests of orthodoxy. Let's see if I can do this without screwing it up this time. Uh, tests of orthodoxy um, become more and more elaborate. Uh, in 268, uh, the bishop of Antioch, Paul of Samosata, um, was interrogated by a council of bishops who eventually condemned and excommunicated him. Um, and in their deliberations, they published a statement of faith. It was just a letter, basically. But they demanded that he, that he subscribed to it, which he didn't do. That's why they excommunicated him. Um, in 314, a local synod, the Council of Arles, demanded that heretics who sought readmission to the church be, quote, asked the creed, which, again, we're not sure what that means, probably asked them the baptismal questions they were asking baptism. So, again, they're getting more and more... Uh, as the church grows, they're coming to the realization that people are holding beliefs that are probably not compatible with each other. And so you're going to begin to have a need for um, um, a more universal standard of orthodoxy. Derek, at this time, how do the other aspects of the Catholic Church that we view today, where are they at? For example, saints, Mary, are those still to be developed? No, there's a veneration of saints and the Virgin Mary, but it's very primitive compared to what we have. It's very undeveloped. As with most things, again, it's not until you get to this period that you're having them reflect on the stuff in an abstract way. For the most part, they're just all, all the churches. I mean, you think, when I say the churches, there's one church, but there are a lot of local churches where that's where you get your traditions from. If you're from the East, Antioch, Alexandria, <clears throat> the major seas that can trace their, their apostolic succession back to the apostles. And there's slight differences across you know, the various different regions. Um, and part of it is that I'm just not quite aware of how, what differences they have. Uh, and there are differences of opinion about things like Mary and uh, the saints. And it's not fully developed. But yeah, there is, a, there is a veneration of saints. There is a veneration of Mary, definitely by the third century, those sorts of things. But that's yet to be worked out as well. Uh, this stuff comes first because uh, it's more central. But yeah, it's there. Um, and so when you get to, um, uh, when you get to this uh, point, you have uh, other things to consider. When we talk about the Council of Nicaea, I haven't even gotten there. I've been talking for a half hour. Uh, but I have to talk about the Roman Empire briefly, because one of the things that people get on in these myths about the Council is that, again, it was all Constantine. Constantine enforced this. Constantine did that. The Roman Empire, again, from a modern perspective, you know, the ancient world is not ours in terms of church-state relations, and so people tend to look back on this and this is terrible. I need to set the, the, the record a little bit, not straight here, but to give you a little background to understand why things happened and why they're not necessarily, um, they don't undermine the truth of what the council taught. And um, brief history here about the conversion of Constantine. I actually gave a talk on this last year. So if you're interested, you can go listen to that. Uh, I, I do have... Um, I do have a podcast. You can actually listen to this, listen to these talks uh, on your own. Um, suffice to say, at the beginning of the fourth century, there was a persecution. The emperor Diocletian decided to try to save the old religion, the pagan religion of Rome, or try to re revivify it by persecuting um, by persecuting um, Christians and other sects within the empire. And so, the so-called Great Persecution began in 303, went to 312. Um, Long story short, uh, the Emperor Constantine became Emperor at the Battle of Milvian Bridge in 312. He defeated uh, uh, Maximius, who was the emperor, uh, Eastern Emperor who was uh, trying to persecute Christians, or Western Emperor trying to persecute Christians. Became uh, Western Emperor, if you don't know, the empire is divided into two sections at this point. Um, becomes the Western Emperor, and he, along with his co-emperor in the year 313, issues the Edict of Milan which granted religious toleration for all religions within the Roman Empire and granted uh, Christianity the first official legal recognition it ever had. It had been a prescribed religion before this, legally speaking. But about uh, 10 years later, for whatever reason, Licinius, uh, his co-emperor co in the East, decided to start persecuting Christians again. So uh, he defeats Licinius and becomes sole ruler in the year 324. He reunites the empire and makes it one again. Now... That's the political situation in general. But one of the things to note is about the role of the emperor in the empire. And the first thing to note is that Roman emperors had a traditional obligation 
to safeguard the character of religion in the state. This goes back to the Republican period, before the empire. Um, religion was a matter of public, um, uh, of, of public life in ancient Rome. You couldn't avoid it. The gods were part of everything. And, and in fact, this is the, something to note here. It's not necessarily the content of your beliefs that they cared about. It was the character or the sort of kind of religious faith, basically, um, that their own ancient Romans uh, cared about. They cared about unity a lot. They didn't want religions that were seen to threaten the state. This is one reason they didn't like Christianity early on, is it seemed as one of the early Christians wanted to separate themselves from, well, from pretty much from all of Roman society because they thought it was corrupt and sinful. And so um, when he became emperor, uh, he took this duty seriously. And by the way, everyone expected him to, Christians included. It was just what you did as an emperor. It was part of your duty to safeguard the religious, um, the religious virtues of the, of the Roman state. It was just what you did. Uh, and so when he does convene the Council of Bishops to try to, as we're going to see, there's a big conflict, um, he, um, he follows the same procedures that he would with the Roman Senate. That is to say, when emperors went into the Senate, they couldn't vote. When he convenes the bishops at Nicaea, he can't vote. Only they can vote. So the idea that he's pressuring them to do something is, again, doesn't quite understand how the Roman state worked at the time. And from what we can tell, the bishops spoke freely on what they wanted to speak about at the Council of Nicaea. The second thing is that he, and we get this from his actual letters, by the way, he actually uses this phrase, he wrote a letter to the bishops at one point saying that you are bishops for the, who govern the internal affairs of the church. I am the bishop for external affairs in the church. He did see it as something of a divine duty to, to, be a, to take care of the church, to take care of external matters, by the way. He was not, for the most part, concerned with doctrines. Uh, in fact, you can see it's one of the problems that he is concerned with unity. He's concerned with the unity of his empire. Remember, he just reunited them. He just said it ended this persecution. Um, he wants things to be stable. He wants order. Uh, and for the most part, by the way, once he learned what church procedures were, he just followed what the bishops told him. So it was not like he was trying to intervene too much and, um, and direct things in that regard. And then finally, just the, just the last thing to note here, is that he became almost immediately, of course, a patron, the major patron of the, of the Christian church, giving it not just, um, giving it not just you know, political patronage, but wealth, uh, donated money, land, built churches for it. He, you know, he gives it a public role, which it has never had before. And again, however much that may seem, again, we have in our minds, you know, maybe the, you know, the relationship between religion and politics is a, you know, kind of a tortured thing. For them, this was just a natural thing. The church had a public role. It was natural that the authorities would support it. It was no big deal at the time. Let's see if I can do this again. Uh, change slides without screwing things up. Oh, yeah, there you go. Just wanted to show you one thing. This is a map of the Roman world about the year 290, a few years before Constantine becomes emperor. Just to show you, talk about, again, um, the role that the state's playing vis-a-vis -vis the Roman states, vis-a-vis -vis playing the church. I'm only going to give you this map because it shows you the various administrative uh, districts of the Roman Empire. But you have those four districts, or four or five districts anyway, or however many are there. They're broken up into smaller districts, which are called dioceses. And yes, that's correct. The church took over the administrative apparatus to a certain degree of the Roman state. It's not a big deal. It's just an administrative apparatus. It's not de fide. Nobody thinks it is. But it became how bishops, they sort of matched up with um, the, 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 um, uh, the map of the state, essentially, uh, once it became a public entity. But it doesn't mean, by the way, that it's somehow poisoned by this, uh, whatever, uh, pagan state or anything like that. It's just an administrative um, item. This I just had to show you. This was discovered a couple of years ago. Actually, last year, actually. This is um, Lake Iznik in modern-day Turkey. Well, Iznik's the modern-day city of Nicaea. This is a, um, a church that was submerged in Lake Iznik which was built sometime probably in the 4th century. This might have been the church that perhaps they celebrated the liturgy in at the Council of Nicaea. Maybe a little later, we're not really sure. Uh, but it's possible. This was the, actually the same thing. I was going to need to show you that anyway. Um, so we're talking about pretty live stuff here. Okay, finally we come to the actual meeting of the Council itself. Um, you ministers of God, bishops and emperor at Nicaea, um, this is Constantine's letter again. He's writing the bishops, calling them new ministers of God who are supposed to govern the church. So how do we get to this? We have these, you know, division, divisions yet about, we have these differences of opinion about who Christ is. How does it come to 
uh, such a serious division? Well, it comes to division mainly because of one man, Arius of Alexandria. And Arius was a deacon from that city. And one of the things about Arius is we actually don't know a whole lot about him. He was born in 256 in Libya. And um, we know by the time he comes into uh, the historical record, about 318, 320 or so, he's an old man. Uh, he's an elderly person. We also know he was pretty much admired for his eloquence, for his austerity, for his uh, manner of life. Um, we know he was very popular. He had a big following in Alexandria. He was um, responsible for the care of a popular church there uh, in the city. And um, we also know, by the way, we don't know what the guy taught, but we also know he studied with someone named Lucian of Antioch, who was a teacher of his, who, um, who died in the Great Persecution in 312. So he learned the feet of someone who, again, who had been martyred during the Great Persecution. We think he probably got his specific beliefs from him. And that's kind of, again, one of the things to talk about here when we talk about this breakdown, this big, big battle over, uh, you know, big doctrines like this, is that both of these people in, in this conflict at Nicaea, they had both suffered through the persecution. They had both sacrificed a lot for the faith. So it's something to keep in mind. But the thing to keep in mind is we don't have a lot of information about him that's unbiased because, of course, Arius was condemned. <laughs> uh, not to spoil the story for you, but um, later authors tended to dump on That's where you get that myth, that story about him dying on the toilet. Uh, it was meant to blacken his reputation because he, you know, he, he taught heresy, therefore he must be a bad guy. That's something that, sometimes that's true, sometimes that's not. Um, we don't really know what a bad guy Arius was, if he was a bad guy in that sense. Um, what we do know, though, however, <clears throat> is he taught a particular version of uh, the Christian faith, which for him, for Arius, his main concern was kind of like those earlier Christian apologists. He was very, he was very uh, concerned, as far as we can tell, to safeguard the oneness and the unity of God, to safeguard his transcendence against, you know, anything else, right? And so for him to say that Christ or the Word or Logos, and I'm confusing these terms, by the way, to get into these terms in a precise way would take days. And so we can't do that, but to say that Christ is, or the Son, is God in the same way the Father is, is means that God's not one. You can't have that. And so he basically says that um, only God himself, God the Father, if you like, was he uses the term unoriginate, that is to say he has no origins, he's eternal, etc., etc. And no other being can share in his essence or his substance. Otherwise, he would not be one God. And therefore, every other being has to be has to have some sort of origin and has to have some sort of beginning. Therefore, and this is where the phrase comes, he was accused of this, I think, later on. Uh, this phrase was attributed to him. That uh, there was when he was not. There was a time when Jesus, when the Son, didn't exist. He was not co-eternal with the Father. He was, if you like, a creature. Now, he may have been the first of all creatures. And by the way, there are biblical phrases you can, you can sort of adduce to defend yourself if you say this. I believe it's uh, Paul, one of his letters, says that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead or whatever. You can say he's the firstborn of all creation or whatever. Um, but effectively, the Son is a creature. He wasn't really God. Christ who died on the cross, and you can, and by the way, they had no problem with calling him divine. Yeah, he's divine in a sense. You know, the Bible talks about gods, you know, small g and all that stuff. So he was a god, but he wasn't the god, if you want to get, put it in colloquial terms, even if he was divine in some sense. Now, Arius was very popular uh, amongst, like I said, the people uh, in Alexandria. His ideas spread very quickly. And... Uh, they came to the attention of the bishop of Alexandria, I mean, who was a saint now, St. Alexander of Alexandria. And um, Alexander, when he heard, and by the way, Alexander was a, basically a Trinitarian. Uh, he confessed that uh, the Son was also God, like God was. Uh, called a meeting of his uh, priests and deacons to discuss the matter, apparently which uh, Arius attended. When Alexander insisted on the unity of uh, the Father and the Son, Arius accused him of use this term, but he accused them of Sabellianism, which again is a big term, basically meaning that you deny the idea that the Son is a separate person at all. Essentially that the Father is only really one person in the, in, uh, in the Godhead. That makes, I know it's, again, that's kind of all these terms. I'm trying to keep it simple, but uh, trust me, when he did this, Alexander demanded Arius Buchanan's reviews, uh, his views. He refused. He just went on preaching them and spreading them as before. 
Uh, that was in 318, we think. A few years later in 320, Alexander convened an assembly of Egyptian bishops that condemned Arius as a heretic and exiled him from Alexandria. Arius then fled to the city of Caesarea in Palestine, where he met one of his two biggest supporters. Um, he had two major supporters among the bishops of the Eastern world, both named Eusebius, confusingly enough, if that wasn't confusing enough as it was. Um, but uh, while in Caesarea, he's welcomed by the bishop Eusebius there, who also had a similar, but not quite the same, we think, uh, again, theology with regards to Christ. Uh, while there, he wrote letters to the bishops of Palestine trying to garner support. Um, and he eventually moved on to the city of Nicomedia, which is in modern-day Turkey, where another bishop named Eusebius really became his biggest supporter. Uh, and he managed to gain the allegiance of several um, neighboring bishops, particularly the bishop of Nicaea, actually. And so you have, a, you have parties forming, essentially, in, within the bishops of the East. This is mostly an Eastern thing, by the way. The... Uh, We'll come to this in a moment. The, the Pope sends representatives from Rome to the council, but for the most part, this is about Eastern bishops fighting with each other. You have one party forming in Alexandria, around Alexander, and one party forming in Nicomedia around Arius and the bishop of uh, Nicomedia there. The same time, Alexander sent letters to 70 other bishops, at least in the Eastern world, informing of, this, of his synod's decision regarding Arius, while also sending out letters trying to refute the views of Arius. And we have these letters, by the way, uh, detailing what he believed. Okay, so what happens next is that in response, the party of bishops supporting Arius held their own rival synod at Nicomedia in 324, in which they proclaimed the uh, orthodoxy of Arius's beliefs uh, and condemned Alexander as a heretic in return. Uh, while trying to garner support, Arius actually wrote and published a statement of his own beliefs called the Banquet, which we have excerpt, we have fragments of which of all things is in poetry, it's in verse, <laughs> of all things, weirdest thing of all. Um, it's at this point, by the way, that Constantine the emperor gets involved because Constantine, Constantine uh, wants his empire to be one. Uh, alarmed by this uh, division, he sends one of his advisors, a bishop from Spain named Osius, uh, with personal letters both to Arius and Alexander. He's, uh, Arius has already sort of made his way back to Alexandria. He goes there and tries to tell both of them, essentially does, Constantine his letters, that you should reconcile, forgive each other, and you're both to blame for bringing these things to public attention. These things don't matter. You're just dividing the church over such subtle and minute details that nobody's going to know, nobody among the common people can know anyway, and you're causing disturbances. And sometimes, by the way, Constantine is alleged to have not understood what was going on. That's probably not true. He might have understood. The big point is he didn't care. <laughs> uh, what he cared about, again, was the unity of the church and his empire. He's kind of like, um, uh, kind of like Dwight Eisenhower. You ever heard how Eisenhower gave a speech? He was giving a speech somewhere. He was talking about uh, the United States and said that uh, this country is founded on a deeply held religious faith. I don't care which one it is. That's kind of, I'm not saying that's totally what uh, Constantine was. He, he didn't embrace Christianity by this point. But he really wanted them to make up for the sake of peace. And his uh, efforts to mediate, of course, fail. And so in 324, he calls the bishops uh, to the city of Ancyra in Turkey to uh, decide this dispute in 324. For some reason, we're not really sure why, at some point he changed his mind and switched it to Nicaea. And to give you an idea, by the way, I, I just made fun of Constance. Let me give you some background. By 324, this is broken out into the popula general population. And there are, um, it's dividing ordinary citizens. We have ancient historians who talk about um, it dividing people within cities and towns. This is a quote, I actually have a quotation when I think about it. Uh, this is an ancient historian named Theodoret from uh, the 5th century. He says, quote, It was not as it had been in earlier days when the church was attacked by the stranger and the enemy. For now it was the men of the same country, men living under the same roof and eating, the same, eating at the same table, who were fighting each other and with words instead of weapons, unquote. Um, and you have to understand, I hate to be, I don't mean to be prejudiced or racial about this, but you remember anybody who's Greek? They love talking about ideas. Uh, and this stuff, literally, I, there are stories from later in the 4th century about how this stuff gets into, it's everywhere, it's in the market. People are talking about this constantly. So it's causing a ruckus. So this is why Constantine wants to do this. Before he gets a chance to, however, 
Oops. Oh, why did that come last? This should be called the crisis defense. Okay, not good at this. Um, before he gets a chance to, um, a council of bishops assembled at Antioch in 325, uh, presided over by his by Constantine's advisor, Osius, which, among other things, condemned, um, tried to condemn Arius's beliefs, but they did something else. They actually put together a statement of faith, which is essentially sort of like a creed, which was laying out the terms of the debate, or tried to. I won't read it out to you. It's really clunky. It's hard to read, and I forgot to bring a copy of the Nicene, the actual original Nicene Creed, and I think about it, which is terrible. You can find it online, but you should. We'll get to this in a moment. But um, you already have dress rehearsals. This is already they're already obviously attempts to influence this assembly that's now going to happen by both parties. And so, one of the things that happens is uh, at 325 is you're going to have. And again, this is something that has to do with uh, evidence and uh, comes from the time. We're still not sure exactly how many bishops attended uh, the council. You have a number that's usually thrown out in histories, uh, 318. That is actually a pious number that was thrown out later on. There's a number, I think there's a number of, I can't remember which, is, it's from the Old Testament. I think it's a number of followers that Abraham had or something like this. Uh, but it's, a, it's not a, an exact number. We know there's between probably 270 and 300 bishops. Almost all from the east, by the way. There's a few Osseus attends from, uh, from Spain. Um, the Pope sends two presbyters as representatives from Italy. For the most part, these are eastern bishops uh, arguing about this uh, at the council. There were certainly, uh, Arias attended, obviously, with the Bishop of Nicomedia. Uh, there were a few priests, a few philosophers were there as well, uh, along with the emperor and his retinue. And that is something to keep in mind here about the participants. The emperor basically runs this show. Uh, it is his show from start to finish. This doesn't mean, by the way, he intervenes in debates, but he is the dominant figure at the council. He's there, he attends the debates. And um, it is he who's sort of pushing this through. Where is the Pope in all of this? Uh, he's too old and free. That's why he sends a couple of his, uh, priests to go and, and be uh, delegates there. But the, the Western Western Church at this point, um, partly because Latins, it has a theological vocabulary, but it's not quite... They're very different, and the Greek vocabulary is much more precise, and so they, they don't really, they're not really that far into Christology at this point. They will, and they get into conflicts because they have different terms for this. Uh, but yeah, this is, they're kind of sitting this one out for that reason. They're not quite on that wavelength the same way that the Greeks are. Good question, though. Uh, it's hard to, we don't actually have a blow-by-blow blow of what happened in the council. The evidence is very spotty. But it seems that after the emperor gives a speech, by the way, in Latin, he can't speak Greek. It's translated in Greek for the bishops. Uh, someone, someone among the supporters of Arius, puts forth a statement of faith of what he believes, uh, which is then debated and critiqued by the bishops present. And what happens is they oppose... Um, uh, Arius' explanation of how, um, you know, his, char his, his characterization of the sun, right? He can't be a creature. And what happens here is pretty important because one of the things about Arius was he was, he was a logician. He was very strict about this. And what, he, what essentially seems to have happened in reply is, okay, you want to say that Jesus, the son, comes, is of the Father or is from the Father or is generated from the Father. Uh, what does that mean? Because what, the, what apparently the Arian supporters pointed out was that's kind of ambiguous. In a sense, every, everybody's from God if they're created by him. In other words, that doesn't make it really distinct, okay, if he's uniquely from the Father, like a son is. And by the way, they would deny he could be a son anyway, uh, for a variety of reasons. And so what happened was, they began debating this idea of, okay, how can the son be of the same nature as the Father? And the term they're going to uh, hook on is a Greek term, and I have to use Greek, forgive me, is ousia. O-U-S-I-A in transliteration. And um, the rebuttal to this is to say that the Son is of the same nature, the same substance as the Father. He's a different person, but of the same substance. Now, this was a term, by the way, that had problems with it. The problem, and by the way, the problem, the, the word ousia, um, it could have at that point in time in the ancient world 28 different meanings. So it didn't necessarily narrow things down to say that. Another problem that it had was this term ousia is never used of God in scriptures. It's not scriptural. This is one of the things that Arius bangs on about, and his supporters do. They, they go from the Bible. They want to they adhere to scripture, right? They want to adhere to Revelation. 
So this is something that would, for the most part, make these bishops kind of nervous. The other reason, and I did not know this till I studied for this lecture, is that that term Uzia, I have to go back and discuss something here in more detail because you need to understand this. That term Uzia had been um, associated with um, a heretical group named the Gnostics. Because, I'm getting this wrong, but the Gnostics believed that the universe, that there was one, one God, right? One creator God. Not even, he's not a creator. He's one all-powerful mind or whatever. And this powerful mind created a demiurge, a sort of inferior God, who creates the physical world. The Gnostics were Manichaeans who thought that the material world was bad. And from this one God, you had these emanations of what they called eons, sort of spiritual beings, that sort of descend into the world. And Jesus is one of them, and Jesus has basically come into the world to save us from, from the material world, essentially. Okay, that's, it, the Gnostics had crazy beliefs. Okay, the reason I mention that is, when they talked about eons or Jesus emanating from the one, the one as they called him, they used the word usia. And uh, the reason why they used that term is the only way they could think of to express the idea that Jesus, or the, word, the son, was from the father, but was still distinct in some way. Uh, and so they used that term homoousios in the creed when they promulgated it. And even though, uh, for the most part, um, again, this I, I can't imagine. We don't again. We, we we don't have you know. We can get the feelings of all the bishops at the time. We don't have journals. You know, have newspapers back then. Um, probably they weren't necessarily all that happy with it. But for the most part, the bishops accepted it. By the end of June, uh, the creed was finished. All but eighteen bishops uh, had signed it. Uh, and this is, again, if you want to see Constantine is heavy-handed, this is where it comes in. He threatened to exile the other 18 who wouldn't sign it unless they signed it. Um, two bishops signed the creed, but there were anathemas attached to it. And I don't have that with me. I forgot to do that, so I apologize. I'm supposed to read this to you so you can see what it's like. It doesn't include a lot of the things that are in the creed we, we recite. Uh, it does include the language about the Father coming from the Son and being born, all of those sorts of things. It mentions the Holy Spirit once, and that's it. And then it anathematizes people who deny this. That's the anathema, basically, of Arius. In the end, only Arius and two of his supporters, both priests, refused to sign, and they were all sent into exile. Now, um, this is the dramatic. This is the dramatic point for us. I should mention they had another two months of talking. What did they do? They spent the rest of their time talking about disciplinary matters, all sorts of things, liturgical practice, uh, the reconciliation of lapsed Christians. Um, church structures, etc., etc., many canons in the Council of Nicaea. But this, of course, for us is the major um, is the major um, uh, point here uh, about what it did. Uh, and thus, it concludes at the end. There's a big banquet at the end. Uh, Constantine entertains the bishop in his palace, and then they all go back home. So, how am I doing on time? Let's see. Uh, had a big stoppage. Okay, not bad. Not bad for uh, screwing up in the middle of this. Okay. So you have the back of this. So what's the legacy of the Council of Nicaea? A couple of things are important here for us. One has to do with the church and its authority. It's hard to overstate the influence of what they did because all of a sudden you had people who you know, Arius, the tradition he's coming out of, the beliefs he was condemned for, they had been acceptable up until that point. Uh, again, someone made this point, I never thought about it, one of the um, historians I did in researching this. There may have been people in that council who supported Arius who may have had scars from going through the persecution uh, that Diocletian had put the church through, uh, who were being condemned for stuff they had believed like yesterday, right? That's a pretty dramatic shift. Uh, and what the church did for the first time was, look, when, the, when revelation is not clear, we as an institution have a right to clarify it, even if it means condemning something that before was acceptable. Um, that's a big shift. That's never happened at, at a universal level, right? This is universally binding on pain of excommunication of the church. Um, this is, again, there, trust me, there have been lots of excommunications before. It's happened locally, never universally like this. So it's a change in that regard. Secondly, it attempts to make this authority binding, right? 
That's what the anathemas do. That's what the, the excommunication is supposed to be for. It's meant to make, I hate using secular terms, policy for the entire church. It's supposed to apply everywhere, right? Uh, and so this is, this is again, this is going to be, it's hard to, it's just hard to overstate how this, how unprecedented this is in a way. Because the church had never had to do this before. It'll become regular practice, obviously, going forward. This, there are uh, seven more uh, councils, six more, I guess you should say, in terms of the ecumenical councils. The Catholic Church counts, what, 22 uh, ecumenical councils? You have a split from the Orthodox. So this would become the normal procedure. But it was the first time they'd done this. Now, what the Creed did was several things, and I already mentioned one of them. It condemned those beliefs that had already been accepted. Or at least been tolerated, if you like, right? Um, second thing that's important for us that it did is that it used non-Christian ideas to settle a dispute over Revelation. Huge, right? Because, uh, again, the basis of Revelation is, you know, unwritten tradition, but it's also Scripture, right? And uh, it contains everything that is needful for salvation. Everything that we needed was given by Jesus to the apostles, and he passed that on. But that does mean at some point it's going to need to be clarified. Because, not again, we saw this. Not everything was exactly clear uh, in the beginning, right? People, people worshipped God, but they, again, the precise nature of it they had to work out. And that sometimes that takes, that takes time. It also, by the way, sometimes takes conflict. Honestly, one of the things that Arius, is, Arius can actually be in a weird way thanked for is his insistence on being logical and precise in using these terms. That's what forced the party that was opposed to him to say, okay, how exactly is God from the Father? And again, let us be clear about something here. If you ever, some of you probably know a little bit of Thomas Aquinas, you cannot reason your way to the belief in the Trinity by your own efforts, right? That's a, it can only be revealed to you by God, right? So it's not like you can prove that through reason. But you do need to get, be able to give a reasonable account to people who don't believe. Otherwise, they'll never believe it, obviously. Um, and uh, you can, in fact, give at least, uh, I think, a reasonable account of it, which is, again, uh, not only a reasonable account of it, but a reasonable account of, of course, what Christians did. Um, it preserved the idea of Christ as God and man uh, for posterity, right? Because in a way, Arius was right, right? Unless there's some way you can figure out how he's both God and man, how he's both, he can be, God could be one in three. You know, if, that was, if Arius had been right, let's put it this way, Christians up until that point had been, well, all worshipping falsely. They'd all been worshipping a dude <laughs> that had died in Palestine a hundred years before, right? They would have been blaspheming God, right? It's wrong to worship human beings. It's wrong to worship something other than God. But, of course, we have this powerful revelation coming from the apostles that he's one in three. Okay, you still have to reconcile. And this is, this is I think this is providential. This is probably the only way you could in any sort of reasonable way. That idea of the Trinity, what they what they decided on at Nicaea, they were guided by providence, I believe. Now, having said all that, they wanted to make their authority binding. They wanted to settle all this stuff. Um, as you can see from the last uh, part of the lecture, the title, it did no such thing. <laughs> it did not settle the issue whatsoever. Um, Constantine, within a few years, we're not really sure when, we're not really sure why, um, recalled Arius from exile. Um, and in fact, there's some evidence there was a church council in Jerusalem that also tried to readmit him to the church. Increasingly toward the end of his life, Constantine, who dies in the year 337, became more and more lenient with his followers as well, uh, allowing them back into the church, as long as they submitted to the, to the settlement at Nicaea in some fashion. And they were perfectly capable, by the way, of giving an interpretation that suited them to the Nicene Creed. It didn't necessarily eliminate every single... Um, every single avenue for denying what the, uh, the council wanted them to believe. And so you have this resurgence of these uh, supporters of Arius. <clears throat> and in fact, at one point, at least according to some of the ancient historians, Constantine allowed Arius to, uh, Arius to return to Alexander and tried to force Alexander, Bishop Alexander's successor, to reconcile with him in 331. His, uh, he refused, and he was eventually deposed for the first time several times, actually, in 335, his successor, if you don't know, is going to become St. Athanasius of Alexandria, and he will be the key figure uh, in how this actually plays out. 
because uh, he will carry the banner of the Nicene Creed and what the bishops have decided there after on. However, as long as he's alive, uh, Constantine keeps things of the rats. However, he, uh, Arius dies in 336, sadly, not on the toilet. Um, but uh, Constantine dies the next year, and almost as soon as he dies, the supporters of Arius come open again in their rejection of um, the Creed of Nicaea. And in fact, within the next few years, they're beginning to gain the upper hand, if you like. They will begin to, if you like, take over many of the major, major bishoprics in the East, and you will have, this will begin, basically, well, this will be the beginning of a half-century conflict for a century for, um, for, for between these two um, battling ideas about the nature of Christ. Which, again, not to spoil it, the right guys won, <laughs> orthodoxy won. It took a long time, and it was very, very messy. Which, by the way, will be the subject of my lecture next month called the Arian Crisis. But that is what I have for you on the Council of Nicaea. Thank you, guys, for listening. Uh, if you have any questions, you guys can uh, 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 shoot and let me know what you got.